from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Drought tightens its grip even more across the Midwest. You've got Illinois this week at 36% good to excellent. I mean, obviously, that's a, a massive drop. So just how bad is it? We hit the fields to find out. As crop conditions take a historic drop, USDA NAS provides perspective with an exclusive deep dive into the latest report. But generally speaking, we don't see that much uh, nationally in just a week's time. Plus, weather extremes take a toll on the Texas cotton crop and in John's world. Norway is back in the news. Now for the news. The drought situation is growing worse in areas of the Corn Belt with 64% of the U.S. corn crop now covered in drought. The latest Crop Progress report says just 55% of the corn crop in the U.S. is rated good to excellent. And across the nation, while nearly 70% of the U.S. corn crop is seeing drought, it's also impacting 57% of the U.S. soybean crop. And USDA says 54% of that crop is rated good to excellent. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says prospects for crop saving rains in the Corn Belt do not look promising right now. And that's due to what's being called an omega block. The good news is that the block that's been persistent over the Midwest for a while now, really back all the way into May, has temporarily shifted just enough that it's going to let a cold front and a storm system work its way through the Midwest starting over the weekend into next week. And so there is a little bit of promise for some rainfall. We've already seen some showers and thunderstorms working their way into the Dakotas, into northern Minnesota. And that trend will continue through the weekend and in the next week. Meanwhile, the hot and dry weather is pushing winter wheat harvest forward in Missouri. Nationally, 15% of the crop is cut. It's normally about 20% complete. Oklahoma is running 14 points behind, while nearly half of the Missouri crop is now harvested. The EPA announcing this week the biofuel blending volumes for the next three years. And while there's an increase in the amount of biofuels oil refiners will have to blend, the volumes include just 15 billion gallons each year of corn-based ethanol. EPA set the final corn-based ethanol mandate at the initial draft level for 2023, but below the proposal for 2024 and 2025, and the levels for the ethanol industry had asked for. However, the renewable volume obligations still exceed previous blending mandates. Now for biomass-based diesel, EPA increased RFS volumes in the final rule by only 590 million gallons over the three-year period when production is already up nearly 400 million gallons in the first five months of 2023 versus last year. Ethanol and biodiesel industry advocates not excited about the news. When you consider the fact that the Department of Energy's own Energy Information Administration, kind of an independent data collection uh, agency, is projecting increased volumes of 650 million gallons this year, uh, more than 800 million gallons next year. EPA's proposal of, of raising our volumes by 60 million this year uh, and 200 and some million uh, next year is just a small percentage of what we see coming online. He says it remains to be seen how negative the RFS will be for the industry in terms of investment in feedstock capacity and the build out of additional biomass based diesel facilities. Also on the policy front, California is officially delaying the implementation of its Proposition 12 law. 
It will go into effect now on December 31st this year instead of July 1st. A Sacramento County judge's order blocking enforcement of the rule has been scheduled to expire on July 1st. But the California Department of Food and Agriculture agreed that any products spoken for and in production prior to that date would be grandfathered in. Although the deadline was pushed ahead to the end of the year, the judge noted there would be no more extensions. The National Pork Producers Council calling the delay welcome news, but says the temporary solution does not solve the challenges and uncertainty the law brings to the industry. Prop 12 requires more space for breeding pigs. Well, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with Chinese President Xi Jinping this week, and while the two seemed to strike an agreement, the complicated relationship between the U.S. and China continued after the trip. Blinken says they've agreed to stabilize deteriorating U.S.-China ties. But after meeting Xi on Monday, Blinken and China is not ready to resume military-to-military -military contacts, which is something the U.S considers crucial. Yet both sides said they were satisfied with progress made during two days of talks. I came to Beijing to strengthen high-level channels of communication, to make clear our positions and intentions in areas of disagreement, and to explore areas where we might work together when our interests align on shared transnational challenges. And we did all of that. But after the meeting between Blinken and Xi, tensions erupted once again, at a fundraiser just earlier in the week, President Biden compared Xi to a dictator. China's foreign ministry firing back with angry words condemning the U.S. Mexico's president says he will sign an agreement with tortilla makers in the country to use only non-GMO corn. Additionally, the Mexican government says it plans to implement new import tariffs on white corn. Mexico's president saying the tariffs will promote more domestic buys, and he emphasized the importance of preserving the nation's traditional food practices. The decision raising concerns again from the U.S. and Canada, both countries recently asking for consultations regarding Mexico's decree, which aims to ban GMO corn imports for food use by 2024. That's it for the news. Well, Texans forced to conserve energy this week due to that extreme heat, but it's also blocking moisture from the Midwest. We'll have a check of your forecast coming up next. Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. H&S high-capacity rakes feature independent rake beams that have the flexibility to flex three feet up or three feet down. Available in 12, 14, and 16 wheel sizes, there are no restrictions even when raking the heaviest of crops. Find out more at the H&S website. Well, heat making headlines this week. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us now with weather. Matt, drought continues to grow as some of the forecasted rains for the Midwest never materialize. And this is a story that keeps happening each week. So what is it about this year's models that's been making it so tough to forecast rains? Time. That's a, a great question. Uh, the, uh, there's kind of two answers to that. One being uh, the bigger the feature when we're talking about rain and atmospheric systems, uh, the bigger the system is, the easier it is to see where it is going to go. So uh, that's kind of a long way of saying that a lot of the rains that we have had, which hasn't been much across the United States, has been very localized and specific, uh, very hard to forecast, uh, especially four, five, six days in advance. And that's just kind of the way the jet stream has been setting up 
of the spring and uh, the official start of summer in that we haven't had any large scale systems bring a lot of rain to the United States. It's rather uh, been pop up showers here and there or very uh, what are called uh, localized or uh, micro systems that are bringing some of the rain and that's what makes it pretty difficult uh, to forecast. The second part of this is that we are headed into an El Nino, meaning that global pattern is starting to shift and that is again making it a little bit harder to lock on to overall patterns within the jet stream. But uh, all that being said, it hasn't changed all that much. We've been seeing rain over the same area and a lack of rainfall over the same area. Uh, so it's uh, one of those situations where things just aren't moving. They've been blocked up quite a bit the last month, month and a half regarding the jet stream. I'll start off uh, <laughs> after we got done with that three minute explanation. I, I know I was hoping for a simple answer. It's, it's tough time. The precipitation outlook showing into uh, June 27th and July 1st. Now what we're seeing here is a little bit better pattern, more favorable pattern uh, for widespread showers. And not only through parts of Tennessee, North Carolina and the southeast, but also back up into the Dakotas and back down here to the south. So things are starting to move a little bit better uh, regarding that jet stream uh, between July 5th. You start to see the same green over the same location as confidence is growing for a wetter than normal pattern uh, over Tennessee, Virginia and back up into the north and east, but also where we need it back into the Midwest where we could see some much needed rainfall. Again, that's looking at the rainfall. The jet stream, this is uh, going through your weekend and into next week. Uh, the pattern's shifting back uh, to a ridge of high pressure building over Texas and back out here to the west. Again, this is what we've been seeing all spring and early summer, uh, making localized rainfall the dominant rainfall feature uh, for certain areas, so which is difficult to forecast three, four, five days in advance. The jet stream is going to be sagging with a trough down to the uh, east coast with that ridge building back over the United States. Expect a lot of heat down here to the south. Uh, some rain chances trying to cut through into Nebraska, Minnesota and Wisconsin by Friday. Thanks, Matt. Well, just how much has the dry weather potentially taken off of USDA's yield estimate? That's what we're asking pro farmers Brian Grady and agmarket.net's Matt Bennett next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Brian Grady and Matt Bennett joining us. Brian, it's, it's like a broken record. We think we may get some rains. Those rains don't materialize in the past few weeks, and we see commodity prices just continue to explode. More volatility this week. Was it all weather driven? Yeah, most of it was, Tyne. And, and with the weather market, you get uh, extreme volatility because of money flow. And uh, the speculative money flow right now will change uh, with each forecast because we've added premium back in. We took the weather premium out uh, earlier in the spring, uh, and now we've added it back in. And, and uh, so we're basically forecast to forecast, which means more volatility and, and money flow. You know, I, I talked to the head of USDA NAS for the crops branch this week, Lance Honig, and Matt, he talked about historically, you know, this five point drop in corn conditions that is sizable. It's not a disaster, but it is sizable. But you look at where this drought is impacting crop conditions. We are looking at some heavy production areas, Matt. Oh, absolutely. So you, you've got Illinois this week at 36% good to excellent. I mean, obviously that's a, a massive drop. When you start talking about the fact that last year uh, we were around 210 in Illinois, you know, and obviously national yield in the low 170s. Uh, to me, you got to ask yourself, what's it do to national yield if you start taking 30, 40 bushel out of Illinois? And I think that that's something that certainly is in the realm of possibilities at this stage of the game. If we don't start getting rain uh, in short order, I think that it could be even worse than that. 
that. So uh, you got to understand uh, this crop is changing by the day. It's been a weird drought in that we haven't been super hot, uh, been fairly cool, but we kind of came into this situation with not a whole lot of subsoil moisture in a lot of areas as far as the Midwest was concerned. Yeah, you look at the subsoil moisture maps from this crop progress report and places like Illinois, Michigan, it is not a pretty picture, Brian. So, I mean, is it going to take more than, than one rain or for traders, do you think in their minds, one good Midwest rain and this rally's over? Well, that's kind of how weather markets work, uh, Tyne. You know, the we're forecast to forecast. And, and so if we do get a rain event, yeah, they're, they're going to take some of that premium back out of the market. And, and uh, um, but then if it turns dry again, um, you'll be back to adding premium. And, and so uh, we are now at the point from a soil moisture standpoint where we're hand to mouth, so to speak, on rains. Uh, we don't have any subsoil moisture to, to pull from, so to speak. And, and uh, as a result, um, it is going to be forecast to forecast. And, and keep in mind, uh, we are just getting to the critical time frame or, or about to get there for corn. Uh, the soybeans have longer, obviously, and uh, so uh, maybe some more volatility in soybeans. But, uh, uh, you know, July is going to be a critical time frame, obviously, for the corn crop because of the pollination and, and then the starting of grain fill. Matt, Brian just said it. I mean, it is still early for soybeans. So is it typical to see this type of rally in soybeans this early in the season? Actually, uh, I've been talking about this quite a bit this week. Uh, as, as we talk here today, actually, the, the bean market was kind of getting beat up. Well, it, it, it hasn't made sense to me that we would rally, for instance, last week on Thursday and Friday, a dollar on November beans whenever uh, we're this early in the year. It's way too early to have a weather market type rally back in 2012 you know we had obviously harsh conditions uh, on our farm for instance uh, i would have told you august 1st that my bean crop would be lucky to make 25 bushel and then we turned around a hurricane uh, came up through the gulf and uh, um, it saved the bean crop we had almost 50 bushel beans and i mean they looked horrific so you can uh, pretty much kill a bean crop and as long as you catch the rain at the right time you can still have pretty decent beans it's still a projection in july but i do think that there's precedent there for usda to cut uh, both the corn and soybean yields uh, in the uh, July WASD report. Uh, so I, I think that that will happen. Uh, but there's some risk involved there, too, because sometimes they cut it and, and uh, it causes market reaction, obviously. And then uh, um, later on, they have to add back in. So uh, there is risk there. Keep in mind, it's still a projection. The first estimate doesn't come until August. And the first uh, farmer survey-based uh, uh, field surveys don't come until September. So we're still a long ways off from having good, hard information coming out of fields. Right now, what we're basing it off of is crop conditions, and those crop conditions are declining. We're also basing it off the, uh, the drought situation. And as you mentioned, the drought is spreading and spreading rapidly across the Corn Belt, especially in the central Corn Belt right now. Well, even before we get to that July report, we have grain stocks next week. We have acreage, so we need to talk to Brian and Matt about that. We'll do that coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, Norwegians may have just struck fertilizer gold. John Phipps tells us why in John's World this week. A few months ago, I got all excited about a 61-mile conveyor belt in the Western Sahara that carries a large chunk of the world's phosphates from a mine in the desert. I showed how Morocco controls the vast majority of phosphate reserves and discussed the possibility of shortages later this century. 
Right on schedule, a recent announcement from Norway qualified those concerns. They have discovered a large deposit of much higher quality phosphate in southwest Norway while exploring for rare earth metals. Aside from the lesson to be learned about predicting natural research shortages, I should have remembered two other rules of thumb for this industry. First, it's a big planet, and the technology of finding stuff on or in it is constantly improving. Second, sometimes when you're looking for one thing, you find other stuff that can be even more valuable. In this case, Norwegian prospectors were trying to locate raw materials for the booming EV industry, which they did, along with minerals needed for other specialized uses like titanium and vanadium. The phosphate reserves they discover will lower European dependence on Russia and Morocco and add new supplies to the global market, which could lower prices over time. Actual mining is years away, but the need for the new mineral resources will speed its development. Europe uses about two-thirds as much phosphate for fertilizer as the U.S., less than 7% of global consumption, but the principle may provide similar surprises. New mines around the world will likely yield several different minerals unrelated to magnets and batteries, churning the markets for those ores in turn. This mining boom will also add to the difficult mineral waste problem such mines always entail. Just like the fracking revolution, drastically revised oil supply projections, searches for new mineral resources will alter predictions about many other industries. If you think about it, cheaper abundant supplies of rare earths will impact the price of oil as it makes EVs more feasible. It also illustrates an old economic proverb. If you are worried about running out of something, raise the price. Thanks, John. A tractor named Bob. Machinery Pete, he has all of the details. So that's in Tractor Tales next. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. Buckle up, we're about to take a trip to the state of Ohio to learn about a very special John Deere L, and we're gonna learn why the owners call it Bob. Bob is a 1939 John Deere L. Um, my husband actually went with Bob. Bob Otto was his name, was a driver that Walt worked with. And um, he actually went with Bob and, and picked out the tractor, and Bob used it down at our local steam show. And, um, Bob passed away very suddenly at Easter time one year, and um, his wife said she didn't want the tractor. She wanted Walt to keep it because she knew what it meant to him and kind of started off our naming of tractors. So, you know, we enjoyed Bob very much. It, it's a lovely way to remember somebody. Most of those, this style tractor was used for truck farming because it was small, it was easy to get on and off of. You could work a, a small garden or, or lot with it. Um, not a very comfortable tractor because your feet are out in front of you. Plows and everything were mounted underneath. Your sickle bar mowers were mounted underneath of them. When you look at the tractor and, and you, you automatically think of the person. You know, to us it's a wonderful way to remember all the good times we had with Bob. You know, the times we went out to eat or, or sitting around the fire at, at a steam show. It, you know, he was just a wonderful man and, and it's just an awesome way to remember him. If we've got it out and doing something, or if we come across pictures, because we're all friends on Facebook, you know, we share it and automatically she comes back with what good times he had with it. 
you know, because it was such a sudden loss, you know, of life and, and just such a wonderful man. And, and it gets the story talking. Somebody will say, why in the world do you call this tractor Bob? Well, this is why we call the tractor Bob. A lot of times on a Sunday afternoon or something, you know, it's like, I need, I need a tractor ride. So, you know, we'll get tractors out and we'll ride them around the block. And if we still don't have anything else to do, we get a couple different ones out and go around the block again. Thanks, Greg. Well, there are only two years in history where corn crop condition ratings were this low, and you'd have to go back more than 30 years to find it. Coming up next, Michelle Rook takes us to the two main I states to see just how bad the drought really is. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report, trusted, timely tradition. Well, USDA is set to release an updated look at planted acreage next week, but after farmers in many areas of the Corn Belt planted the crop in near record fashion this spring, the moisture situation made a dramatic turn. And now there's more debate about crop size and potential yields than there are acres. And this week's Farm Journal report, Michelle Rook looks at the crumbling Midwest crop conditions. Although it's early in the season, farmers say they're losing yield as national crop ratings have dropped like a rock. More than 50% of corn and soybean acres are now in some level of drought and major production areas are even experiencing a flash drought. And without rain soon, some farmers say they're on the verge of a disaster. The 2023 crop season got off to a great start for central Illinois farmer Brad Wade. Even though he had to replant some beans due to frost, he got an excellent stand on both beans and corn. However, nearly 70% of the state is now short to very short on subsoil moisture. Our subsoil moisture here north of McLean is uh, very poor. Uh, we've had just enough rain since planting to keep things going, but uh, we're on fumes as far as soil moisture goes. Drought is deepening across the Corn Belt with major production areas dry for the last few weeks and actually experiencing a flash drought. And we see this, these numbers kind of changing. We see the drought monitor expanding after seeing a major contraction, you know, for the last several months uh, coming out of last fall's drought. And uh, it, it starts to worry us. Now, when we look back at this time period, like May 10th to June 10th, Parts of the Great Lakes Basin, Mississippi Basin, Ohio Basin were at the driest they've been in our 131 years worth of records. So crop stress is becoming a real concern, especially in corn as it's heading into pollination, its key reproductive stage. We're starting to see the effects of, of some drought stress. Field of corn behind me is starting to roll up and it's 11 o'clock in the morning. It's been relatively cool overnight, so that's a, that's a danger sign. Wade says it's already resulting in yield loss. So the degree of damage is a 300 bushel corn that's now 280. Somebody's not going to worry too much about that. But if it's 250 corn going to 200, that's kind of a bigger deal. I think we're 10 days away from that. We need a rain by the 1st of July to really stop the damage because we're determining rows around on corn right now or already have. So that's going to be a factor. Soybeans are an August crop, but Wade says that crop is also in jeopardy. Stunted plants won't put on as many nodes or pods, hurting yield potential. Crop stress is showing up early for farmers in parts of northwest Iowa. While some areas of the state received rain recently, many others were missed and have been seeing carryover from last year's drought. Tiles in a lot of places haven't run for a year, if not two. Um, I know last year Woodbury County National Weather Service recorded the second lowest uh, precipitation on record. I think 1933 was number one. Um, 
According to the rain gauge at my place, I'm actually behind versus last year. The beans are stunted and the corn is visibly showing the impact of not just dry conditions, but also heat with highs in the 90s the last two weeks. It just seems like during the day you see the sandy spots out in the hills and the corn curling up, so it makes you really wonder, yeah, is there going to be permanent damage from this type of heat stress? And Nelson believes he's already losing top end yield with conditions worse than recent droughts. We weren't worried about the crop at this point um, in 2012 and we are now. The highest usage days are coming up and some of the hottest days are coming up and there's absolutely nothing in the tank. You know, there's nothing in the soil. Central Iowa had better subsoil moisture, but spring precip is still running below normal. Probably down 35-40% right now on moisture that, that we typically do. So. Uh, a lot of the tiles are still flowing, but they're kind of drying up too a little bit. Lloyd's optimistic the crop hasn't been hurt yet, but says rain is critical in the next two weeks or they'll shave top end yield. It's hard to put a figure on, but probably 20% at least by July, you know. And the thing is, it just depends how much and when. I mean, we've been getting a couple little sprinkles, but 10th of an inch here and there is not really doing it, you know, not even keeping the dust down. However, corn is rooting deeper with the stress, and if those areas receive moisture, they could still rebound and see some surprisingly strong yields. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thank you, Michelle. And not only will USDA give an updated look at acres coming up on Friday, but they will also refresh the grain stocks report. So what has the potential to be the bigger market mover? Brian Grady and Matt Bennett rejoin us for U.S. Farm Report next. Rejoining us now, Matt Bennett and Brian Grady. Matt, as we look up coming next week, we have grain stocks report. We have the acreage report from USDA. Do you think either of those could be a big market mover? And where does agmarket.net stand right now on planted acreage? Yeah, on planted acreage, you know, the March numbers, of course, around 92. We're going to come in a little bit below that. Uh, uh, not, a, not a whole lot. Uh, 91.85 uh, is where we're at. Uh, we kind of threw those uh, acres over towards beans. We feel like the total acreage is going to be robust, as the USDA indicated. I think that this spring certainly uh, necessitated that that would happen. And so, of course, we took our bean number up to, uh, you know, the 87.65. And so uh, with that being the case, I, I've got to think uh, a couple of things come to mind. I do think that you'll have double crop acres. It'll be pretty strong. And I think where we see that little shift in acreage is maybe uh, mostly in uh, North Dakota. We know that uh, crop went in the ground late there. Uh, prevent plant probably didn't come into play as much as maybe just some switching of acreage. So Brian, I mean, heading into next week, do you think kind of the, the acreage report that it won't be a huge market mover? Well, I think that the grain stocks has a history of being the, the data that uh, moves markets the most. And, and so unless there's some sort of major acreage surprise, uh, which we aren't anticipating, but unless that happens, uh, I think the, the June 1 grain stocks will be the one that, that has the potential to move the market. Now, with that said, uh, there has to be a major surprise there, too, to, because weather is the primary focus right now. And, and that'll remain the case uh, unless we do see some surprises. Brian, it's no secret that demand is in trouble on both corn and soybeans. You know, we've been talking about that. How big of a drop would we need to see in U.S. production to make up for the, the declining exports that we've seen on the books? I, I think if you start lopping some bushels off uh, with the yield and, and things like that, um, it doesn't take long to get the balance sheets uh, quite a bit different looking than what they are currently. And, and so um, that will be a focus as we move forward. Uh, you know, especially if USDA cuts the yield like we anticipate that they will. 
Yeah, Matt, is that something you agree with? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, when you when you look at this export situation, it is very concerning to see that our new crop uh, exports are, are running uh, as poorly as what they are, both corn and beans. You start looking at the balance sheet, and obviously a 181.5 gives you awfully lofty numbers as far as where your carryout could be. Uh, Again, I got to think that we're going to drop down closer to uh, maybe an all-time record yield of a 177, which still seems uh, plenty rich, but let's face it, it's July, so it's early. And uh, as Brian indicated earlier, sometimes you can kind of go too far and then turn around and have to go higher again. So I don't expect the USDA to just go all, all in on some sort of a massive yield cut. Uh, but whenever you start throwing in a 177, it changes the balance sheet somewhat. Uh, obviously, feed usage numbers are going to be uh, uh, maybe not as robust as we've enjoyed the last few years, especially with cattle numbers where they're at. And then, of course, ethanol uh, is uh, trying to catch up a little bit as far as this old crop situation is concerned. Moving forward in the new crop, I've got to think we're going to stay fairly steady. But I do think as long as we have uh, a decent crop whatsoever, it's going to be hard to keep your carry uh, you know, in that 2 billion and below range. Uh, if it's all full on drought, like we're kind of looking at right now, all bets are off as to what that might look like. Well, speaking of demand and speaking of ethanol, you look at the RFS this week, Brian, soybean oil made a, a sudden move, limit down. Why did the soybean oil market not like the kind of the, the, the leaks of the RFS and what it could mean? Well, uh, you, you have to uh, dial back uh, the calendar a full year. And at this time last year, uh, the market really started to take off soy oil, that is. And, and uh, it, it was driven by a lot of speculation that uh, um, renewable diesel would just explode and, and that the RFS would be much higher. Uh, the proposals that came out from uh, EPA in December uh, were disappointing. And then the, uh, the numbers uh, this week were also disappointing. And so you've seen the air come out of the proverbial balloon, so to speak. And, and uh, I think that that market now it has to find its footing, has to figure out what uh, the real value is. And uh, we've just seen extreme speculative uh, money flow in, in that market uh, to the upside initially a year ago and now to the downside. Brian, Matt, thank you so much. We talked about acreage, cotton acres. That's a big question mark right now, especially for Texas. Some of those areas that just got hammered with rainfall. We're off to Texas to look at the potential acreage picture there coming up next. In just a matter of weeks, a second deadly tornado ripped across the Texas High Plains this week. It's been a sudden switch in weather. And as we found out this week, the year of extremes could also come at the cost of cotton acres. Last summer, sentiments across the Texas panhandle were sinking. This is going to leave a scar, going to leave a mark that's good, uh, that guys are going to remember forever. We don't have an acre of dry land left. It's all been uh, failed out. Nearly a year later, the story is dramatically different. Pretty drastically, pretty quickly, too. Cody Besant is the CEO of Plains Cotton Growers, representing cotton farmers across 42 counties in the Texas High Plains. Besant says farms across much of his area received a deluge of rainfall right at planting, and that sudden switch created new challenges. As you get through the Panhandle area and all the way down through their western portion of the High Plains, their plant deadline is May 31st. Um, so we've obviously surpassed that. But as you move south, that deadline was later and more of the cotton crop was able to get planted this year. But it's definitely a different story depending on where you travel in the panhandle. Really what that kind of means from, from a logistics standpoint, from acres, uh, we're going to see obviously a, a pretty sizable amount of reduction in acres from basically Plainview North. 
um, at least from a cotton perspective. He says this area historically plants 3.5 to 3.7 million acres. We're probably going to be about 3.2 to 3.5 million acres planted. Not only was it rainfall impacting planting this year, but also what farmers have seen since. Lots of hail. There has been a lot with, the, with these storms that have come through. There's been a lot of hail with them. We had areas where we had, you know, four to five inches of rain that fell over a couple of hours um, and just completely flooded the fields. We caught up with Todd Straley while he was in Amsterdam this week promoting U.S. cotton. But last year when we talked to him, that's when the drought was drowning out farmers' hopes. When you get up north of north of Plainview where I am, up into the uh, uh, northern panhandle of Swisher County, and then even, uh, even north of that, up north of I-40, I think I had about 20% of my acres in that area that got planted, and I don't think I have an acre of that standing today. Besant says that's in a fairly small area of the panhandle that took the brunt of the damage with field after field that looked like this. Several acres being impacted by that, but but it's it's really pocketed. It's it's not a, a big splash like one would think that it is. You know, from a, a number standpoint, I'd say maybe a couple hundred thousand. Straley says Plainview and South, the planting and production picture is much better for cotton. We had roughly 60% of our intended acres what actually got planted. Uh, of that 60%, Roughly 20% of that has uh, been lost to uh, to hail. But still better than last year's nightmare. Honestly, the stuff that got planted and is still, is still standing today looks awesome. A lot of my dry land has a three and four foot profile underneath it. Better moisture than, than, uh, than we have seen in a long, long time. But just look at USDA's latest ratings for subsoil moisture in the Crop Progress Report. 30% of Texas's subsoil moisture is considered short to very short. That compares to 72% on April 2nd. That's when USDA's first Crop Progress Report of the year was released. For crop conditions, one-third of the cotton in Texas is rated good to excellent. Compare that, though, to Alabama, where 75% of the crop is in the good to excellent category. Today we're getting rain, glad of it. Just... Just as average year of getting it in, you know, getting everything planted. The Bridgeforth's farm in northern Alabama, while cotton is considered their main crop, Gregory says their rotation is typically split into thirds with the mix of corn, cotton, and soybeans. But he says to keep the crop going, there's one main thing they need. Rain. <laughs> with little heat to start, it impacted the Bridgeforth's cotton crop. Cotton is running a little behind schedule. But Mother Nature turned up the heat this week with what meteorologists are calling the Omega Block dominating the U.S. and bringing a heat wave in Texas. We needed that to really kind of get cotton going and off to the races. Now, NAS will give that updated look at acres next week. But in the March report, USDA said growers intended to plant 11.3 million acres of cotton this year, an 18 percent drop from last year. Well, cotton country in Texas is also home to a number of wind turbines, but it's solar panels stirring up debate and customer support this week. That's next. Crops are not as green as we think, and it's not the drought. Carbon pipeline is causing intense conflict in South Dakota, and it's also reviving concerns about eminent domain and property rights. But the competition for land is also growing when it comes to adding solar panels, as a viewer points out in customer support this week. More questions about solar energy and farming. Our farm in southwest Georgia is under pressure to sell out to solar. Taking productive irrigated farmland to solar is wrong on so many levels, in my opinion. 
add into the equation the loss of production and the loss of carbon sequestration when solar is placed on farmland. Is solar on irrigated farmland greener than the crop? That's from Robert Trulock, from whom I need an address. There are several things going on here. First, no farms are taken for solar. Land cannot be condemned by eminent domain for energy uses, only by owner consent. Any pressure is financial or from neighbors where some residents want to sell, but their windfall is contingent on adjacent owners. Another misconception is life cycle CO2 emissions from row crop farming. Do your own research. But a good rule to remember that unless a crop is permanent, it has a positive carbon footprint. That means it releases more carbon than it sequesters. Crops do assimilate, take in CO2, but release practically all of it by harvesting or de residue decay. How assessments are done is not standardized, so you can probably find results to match your prior beliefs, especially if assimilation is equated to sequestration. No matter how assessment is done, there is a similar method available to all farmers, organic matter soil tests. OM is about 60% carbon, so the test is a good proxy. If carbon is being sequestered, OM should increase. Ours have barely budged over decades. So if crops do sequester carbon in the soil, where the heck is it? Another obvious fact is assimilation only occurs when the plant is alive, which for corn's what? Three months out of the year. Virtually all farmland is a net GHG emitter. Solar emits none. Simply put, crops are not annual rainforests. Finally, at the risk of repetition, it would take about 10,000 square miles, or 6 million acres, to generate all the electricity needed in the U.S. If every panel took out land from production, it would be about 2% of our current 340 million cropland acres. Currently, about one-third of solar installations are put on farmland. Farmers have the right to oppose renewable energy projects on their farms and complain about their neighbors' decisions, but land use alarm and carbon sequestration claims are questionable justifications. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, an exclusive one-on-one -on -one interview for the head of the crops branch for USDA NAS with a historic drop in crop condition ratings this week. What does it all mean? That's exactly what we seek to find out next in From the Farm. Well, the weekly decline in USDA NASA's crop condition ratings have been historic. And for corn, looking at condition ratings this week, you'd have to go back 30 years to see condition ratings this low. So what does it all mean? Well, we talked exclusively with the head of crops branch for USDA NAS to find out. As dry weather continues to dominate crop conversations right now, NAS says nationally 55% of the corn crop is rated good to excellent. The overall percent that's rated good to excellent is really starting to dip fairly low historically for what we would see this time of year. Just how low? Well, Lance Honig of NAS says there are only two years where condition ratings have been lower for this particular week, 1992 and 1988. And Honig says the five-point drop in corn crop condition ratings is also something to note. Nationally, it doesn't always seem like that much to see a five or a six percentage point drop in your good to excellent rating. But generally speaking, we don't see that much uh, nationally in just a week's time. 
relatively speaking, if you look back to, you know, history, and we've got data back to the mid 80s on this, you know, we're only seeing one, two, three years in many cases where ratings were either lower than this or where we saw greater drops in a week such as this uh, over that time span. When you break the ratings down state by state, Honig points out there were considerable crop condition rating drops across several key Corn Belt states. That includes Illinois, where the 12-point drop for this week is the largest since 2007. In Iowa, the 11-point weekly decline for this week is the largest since 1991. And in Wisconsin, ratings sunk 16 points, which is the most significant drop in ratings ever for this specific week. Bottom line, Honig says the trend of the weekly ratings are important, but there's no way to translate a percentage into potential yield. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Be sure to tune in next weekend. We'll have a deep dive and a look at the USDA reports coming out late next week, so a lot to cover. From all of us at U.S. Farm Report, thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us again next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.